Okay, good to see you folks. <clears throat> Hope that wasn't too loud of a boom there, but... So, the mystery of the missing clicker. <laughs> Solved. What a wonderful week it was. Jack, it was interesting to uh, hear your testimony there, that as a child, 1958, what was the day? July 13th. So, I have an old Bible like that, <clears throat> the whole Bible, not just the frontis, uh, and it has a similar date in it when I said yes to the Lord. It was April 25th, 1958. So, just interesting there to see how the Lord is working in different places and different people. And I hope he's working in your life in spite of the challenges of this uh, period of time. We are back to Job for the final uh, message in this uh, what for me, maybe for you too, has been a, a difficult study. Uh, hard to know just what's going on in some uh, places in Job. But we've taken a stab at it, and today we want to wrap up our discussion. We want to talk about Job's restoration, which is the concluding verses of uh, chapter 42. So follow along as I read. After the Lord had said these things to Job, remember they had that uh, extensive conversation at the end of which Job says, I, I repent. I, I didn't know what I was talking about. So after these things have been said to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a 1,000 yoke of oxen, and a 1,000 donkeys. If you go back to the beginning of the book, that's double of everything he had before, right? And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapush. 
Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so Job died, an old man and full of years. Well, let's... uh, Let's pick up a number of things here that show up at the end. The first, uh, I guess, obvious point that we need to reflect on is that vindication comes at the end, particularly for Job. Vindication, uh, as you know, is a, uh, it's a judicial metaphor. Even when we don't think specifically about a courtroom and a judge, Uh, we sometimes use the term of somebody being vindicated in their opinion or whatever they did. The background, the metaphor, the picture is still judicial. It's still that, that people are in a place where a judge is evaluating and bringing a verdict that clears them of a charge. So vindication now comes at the end. Job has been asking for a day in court with God. He gets a day in court. He decides he doesn't want to pursue his case. He withdraws his suit, if you will. But now there's still a vindication to take place, and it's a vindication of Job uh, before the world, before his friends in particular. And it's God who at this point vindicates his servant Job. By the way, I don't know if you noticed when we read, five times over in those first couple verses, Job is described as the servant of God. It's just a striking how that theme comes through. Job is now the one who's going to be vindicated, contrary to what his friends have thought and said uh, for most of the book. God says of Job, He has spoken the truth about me. Now, Job has said a whole lot of stuff in this book, and some of it was a bit on the foolish side. And when he finally gets his audience with God, he recognizes the foolishness of what he has been saying, and he repents of that. But this larger judgment still stands with regard to God's attitude toward Job and his friends. Job is the one who has spoken the truth. They have not. Well, you know, what do we make out of that? What has Job said about God that reflects the truth? Well, a number of things. Obviously, Job has had a strong sense that God is sovereign. That God is the king, that God rules in all of human affairs, including the affairs of Job's life. Job recognizes that from the very beginning of his afflictions. Remember, he loses all this stuff. The reports come in in chapter 2, and what does Job say? He says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God is sovereign. The Sabaeans have come in and they've 
you know, slaughtered some of his uh, servants and they've stolen some of his flocks and, uh, and other groups have come in. <clears throat> uh, are they to blame? Sure. But Job doesn't waste any time with that because he understands that beyond, behind all of these specific circumstances, there is a God who rules the world, who is sovereign, and he acknowledges that from the beginning. Moreover, Job believes that God is just. Now, to be fair, this is where he waffles. He, he starts out strong, but as his suffering progresses and as his friends push against him and say, because his friends agree with that too, right? His friends say, God is just and you are suffering, Job, so you must have done something to merit your suffering. That's their understanding of God's justice. And the more they push on Job, the more Job pushes back and says, no, I am innocent in what I am suffering. I've been faithful to God. And so the harder Job is pushed, the more he begins to entertain the possibility that maybe God's justice hasn't played out fairly in his situation, right? We've, we've seen that. But for the most part, Job still remains convinced that God is just. And that's why all through his discussion with his friends, he's saying, I, I wish that I could get a day in court with God. If I, could, if I could only speak with him, I know I could persuade him of my case. I know that I would be vindicated. And then there's that interesting theme that shows up a couple places. Uh, the high point, I guess, is chapter 19, where Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he will stand on the latter day upon the earth. And and knowing that his Redeemer lives, Job has a certain confidence in spite of what he's suffering. It's not just chapter 19. There's other places, too, where he, where he talks about God as his friend who is ultimately going to care for him. He speaks the truth about God. And then, in a strange way, not only is Job vindicated, not only is Job so shown to be the truly innocent sufferer that he claimed to be, but because of Job's faithfulness in pursuing God, what we find is that Job in his own way has vindicated God because God himself is up against a charge in this book, right? Right? It's the charge of the Satan that we thought about in the first two chapters of the book. I haven't heard anything about that since. But it's the Satan who raises a charge against God and says, uh, God, uh, you don't rule the world wisely. If you were wise, you wouldn't simply bless the righteous. Because in doing that, what you ensure is the fact that people serve you not out of a pure heart, but only because of what they get. And uh, 
you know, God has brought that on himself to a certain extent because he starts the whole discussion by saying, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him in all the earth. He's a blameless man. He fears God. And Satan then brings the charge. Well, of course he fears God. You take good care of him. Why wouldn't he? That's the charge. God is not operating his universe the right way. And so Job, unknown to Job himself, Job becomes a test case of the way God operates in the world. And becomes a test case of this this important question that you and I need to ask ourselves also. That is, does Job love God for who God is or does Job love God for what God gives him? What about Dave Dunbar? I wonder if I wonder if Dave Dunbar loves God because of what he gets out of the relationship. Or does Dave Dunbar love God at least in part? Okay, we'll make it a little bit easier. At least in part for who God is and for the extraordinary grace of being able to live and serve him. Is that possible? The Satan says nobody has that kind of disinterested love in God. But God has, in effect, bet the farm on Job, huh? Job never knows that, but that's what has happened, the story tells us. And Job, in the end, has vindicated God before the world and particularly before the Satan. Because Job shows that it is possible for a person under extraordinarily adverse circumstances, having lost everything, to still serve God and seek for God. Remember that, uh, uh, that great statement by Tozer where he says that God waits to be wanted. God does, you know. He waits for me to want him. He waits for you to want him. He waits for Job to see whether Job really wants God or does Job really want the stuff that God gave him. And Job has vindicated God. So in all these areas, with his life, with his actions, with his speech, Job has spoken the truth about God. On the other hand, the three friends have not. Now, they've said a lot of orthodox things, right? You can go through their speeches and where they talk about the sovereignty of God and how God judges the wicked and how he blesses the righteous. And you say, yep, 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 yep. You can even memorize some of those verses and that would be fine because they are speaking truth. But as we saw, they are speaking truth out of a framework of correct answers. 
because it appears that the further you go with the friends, they don't know God as much as they know a system of teaching about God. And, and the difference is that when they then come to deal with Job himself, they don't, they're not able to speak words of wisdom to Job. They're not able to speak truth into Job's life because they don't understand the truth. And so God actually says in these verses that he's angry with the three friends, even though they've spoken the truth, right? Again, there's all kinds of stuff to think about here for ourselves. We can be people who are very committed to orthodox teaching, having the correct words to say about God and there's still this possibility that God could be angry with us because all we've got is a system. All we've done is become the the Bible answer man. But we don't have the living God in our lives. We're not seeking him. And uh, this is where the friends have ended up and, and God's angry with them. And then in this delicious bit of irony the Lord says to them you bring sacrifices so that Job can offer the sacrifices for you and Job will pray and I will listen to Job the implication is they can pray and God will not listen to them it's part of this whole vindication theme that's going on here A little quote here from John Hartley in the conclusion of his uh, commentary on Job. He says, Yahweh shows that he permits far more latitude in genuine human searching than that tolerated by those who hold rigidly to a narrow theology. The three friends, right? A narrow theology, a system without the living God. And God at the end of Job, shows that he is willing to wrestle with Job, to listen to Job even raise questions about whether God is running the universe the right way. God tolerates that. He rebukes Job, but he tolerates that because Job is his friend who is seeking to know him in the midst of all the suffering. So, vindication, and then the concluding verses of the chapter are about blessing. We need to think about this a little bit more, too. Job is blessed. He was blessed at the beginning of the story. He lost those blessings. Now he regains them, and he regains them twofold. What are we to say about that? Well, we might want to go back to a verse that we looked at Early on in Job, Paul's statement, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. What a man sows, that he will also reap. The principle of retribution, right? Which is uh, definitely a part of biblical wisdom. Living God's way in God's world, that's what wisdom is. We live with an understanding and an expectation of retribution. Retribution says, you reap what you sow. 
Moses says to Israel, I put before you two ways. The way of life, the way of death, the way of blessing, the way of cursing. The way of life is the way that God lays out in his covenant. So keep his commandments and live. The way of cursing, the way of death is disobedience to God's covenant, lack of faithfulness to him, choose life because there is a retribution that works out in the course of history. And the wisdom literature is full of this. Ecclesiastes has it. The book of Proverbs has it. The first psalm, very clearly. The contrast between the one who meditates on the law of God, who is like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit and its season, its leaf does not wither, Whatever that person does who meditates on God's word, whatever he does will prosper. The wicked are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. Life and death, blessing and cursing, retribution works out. You say, well, but but are you telling me that at the end of Job, all that whole discussion about The innocent suffering, has that all gone out the window? No, it has not all gone out the window. Because here is where I think Job is particularly important in our understanding of Scripture and of this whole principle of retribution. And that is that a simplistic view of retribution does fail. It is not true. So what are we going to say? Well, we're going to say that other things being equal, the one who sows to the Spirit reaps from the Spirit. The one who sows to the flesh reaps from the flesh. Other things being equal. That is true, and it is seen to be true again and again. Other things being equal. The problem is that in life, there are a lot of things that aren't equal, huh? And that's where the three friends go wrong. Because they have a simplistic view of of retribution. The only thing they can fathom in view of the great suffering of Job is that Job has done something that God's paying him back for. They don't have allowance in their understanding that there are exceptions to the rule. That life is complicated, and the very fact that they are not able to identify a particular sin that they think Job has brought all this suffering upon himself with, They're not able to do that. They take some guesses along the way. But that alone should have challenged them in their understanding of how retribution works. But it didn't. So a simplistic view of retribution fails. Let's go one further. So Job remains faithful. He continues to pursue God, and at the end, his pursuit of God is vindicated. 
and we're shown that he really is innocent. And now God blesses him with double of what he had before. Here's the thing, friends. Job's experience isn't universal either. Wouldn't it be nice if in all of our suffering, especially that suffering which we may enter into in innocence, wouldn't it be nice if uh, somewhere later in this life, God would turn that all around? And everybody would see, and we would experience a sort of deep satisfaction. Yeah, the retribution principle still works, and it's working for me. And yet, it's not very hard to look around and see people who have suffered innocently or who are suffering innocently who don't have Job's experience either. Who go right to the end of their lives in this powerful experience of suffering which they have not brought upon themselves. That's part of reality as well, is it not? And as we think about that, I suppose then we need to do what we, we try to do different places, especially looking at the Old Testament, and that is we need to ask this question, what is the story within the story? Story small s being the story of Job and his experiences, and story capital S-T-O-R-Y, being the overall story of the Bible. In other words, we're asking the question, how, how does this smaller book of Job fit within the canon of Scripture? What place does it have there? <clears throat> uh, we have to be like people reading a good mystery, you know? Uh, you read it once through, and you get the basic hang of it and what's going on, and then if you're like me... Uh, as the end is being sewed up and all the pieces are coming together, you say, no, wait a minute. What, what did they say about that earlier? So then you're going back and you're rereading the story, knowing where the story's going. And you see that the author has put in little suggestions that you missed the first time through. So if we read the Bible that way, particularly if from the standpoint of the New Testament and the fulfillment of all God's purposes in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And from that standpoint, we read back the earlier stuff. What do we see there? So as we come to the end of Job, here is one of the things that stands out so strongly about this book. It's the emphasis on people suffering who don't deserve to suffer, who are truly innocent. And those opening chapters of Job, they set up the whole discussion, don't they? Because God himself, at the beginning, says, here's Job, who is a blameless man. 
and now he's going through the ringer. And his friends are saying, Job, you're not really blameless, but we know from the beginning what they don't, what Job doesn't know. We know that God himself has said, this is a blameless man who is suffering innocently. Now, I'm sure as you think about it, a book like that in the Old Testament is very suggestive as it points ahead to where this story is going. Because this story of Job is heading toward that bigger story of Jesus where once again we have an innocent sufferer. Uh, An innocent sufferer who, if you read the Jesus story, that's one of the big things that stands out in the Gospels and in the later epistles. That he doesn't suffer. He's not dying with criminals because he's a criminal himself. Or that he's done anything wrong. As the book of Hebrews says, he is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separated from sinners. And yet, he is dying a criminal's death. The innocent sufferer. And there's mystery about this, isn't there? There's a great mystery why Job suffers. Job never finds out. God never tells him. Job never explains it to the friends. We, the readers, have omniscience, right? (laughs) Because we're clued in at the beginning. But Job doesn't find that out. He has to experience suffering as a big question mark, as a big why. Will Job know why when he gets to eternity? Well, I mean, maybe even now he's been able to read the book. I I don't know how that works. Maybe he has an autographed copy of Job that he keeps with him in heaven. But he doesn't know as he goes through his life why this has happened. There's a a great mystery about suffering. Sometimes we know, or sometimes we do find out, other times we don't. When the disciples who walked with Jesus saw the end of his life, they were totally confounded. It made no sense Remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, that uh, resurrection day, who meet Jesus and don't recognize who he is. Somehow he's transformed in a way that they don't recognize him. But what they say is, we thought that this was the one who would redeem Israel. That's what we thought. And how can that kind of a vision of the Redeemer who is to come and the Messiah who fulfills all the promises, how can that end up in the suffering of Calvary? How could God allow that? Where did we miss what was going on? Now, of course, Jesus then with the two and later with all the twelve will begin to teach them and instruct them and explain to them some of that why. 
And the Holy Spirit will come and follow that ministry with even deeper teaching. But there is a mystery about suffering, innocent suffering. Even with regard to the cross, there is still mystery about that that we don't understand. We know enough that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, but if you want to say the mechanics of how does suffering work to do that, we don't know that. There's a mystery about suffering. The mystery of Job finds an even greater complement in the mystery of the suffering of the Son of God. But here's what we do know, friends. We know from the end of Job that God's purposes for Job were good. As mysterious as all the things were that happened to him, as unexplained as they were, as terrible as they were to endure, God's purposes for him were good. Remember that discussion we had at the beginning of our Job study of those fundamental things that God's people hold on to, that God is great and that he's good. And at the end of Job, we're still at that same place. As hard as everything was for Job, not only... Do we as readers understand, but Job himself understands that God is great and God is good. He's sovereign, and his purposes for us are well intended. But if that's true with Job, the innocent sufferer, how much more true is it in the greatest of innocent sufferers who gave his life for us? What is God doing there? Well, he's doing something for our good, for our salvation. And as Paul looks on that, he draws a conclusion that is good for Job and for every one of us who in various ways going through life suffers not just for mistakes we've made, that happens, but we suffer also at times for things that we are not responsible for. But Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, the innocent one, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Why would he do that? Because, Paul says, we have the greatest illustration an evidence of the goodness of God in that he gave his son for our sins at Calvary. And rooted in that confidence and understanding of what the cross means for us, we go out, like Job, sometimes getting surprised with difficulties, with painful situations, Situations that lead us to say, God, why is this happening? What is it that you are doing? And sometimes God, in various ways, reveals this is exactly what I'm doing. We say, oh, okay, Lord, I I can deal with it if, if that's what you're doing. And other times we get no answer. But because we know that Jesus came and died for us, Paul says... God will give us all things that we need, and therefore, he concludes further down in chapter 8, 
that there's nothing in all the world that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no suffering that could or did separate Job from the love of God for him. Nothing separated from him from that. And if you are a believer in Jesus, there is nothing in heaven or earth that can separate you from God's good purposes being fulfilled in your life. Now, it may be that you've got some suffering that you're going to carry right through to the grave. That may be the case. But because we have a fuller understanding, I think, of what goes beyond the grave than Job did, we understand that all of the accounting is not done until we're in God's presence. But we rest assured that the accounting will be done fully and perfectly. And in that day, we will be, you will be, I will be completely satisfied with all the accounting that is done. God will show himself to be the God who is not only sovereign, but is good. Let's pray. Almighty God, gracious Heavenly Father, teach us to trust you deeply and to rest in your infinite wisdom. Not only when the light shines brightly on our path, Lord, but but also when the night is dark and we cannot see the road ahead. May the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Assure us that every intention of our God for us is good. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Good to see you again, folks. We will be dismissing, as we did last week, from the back. Uh, Please keep your masks on, at least until you get to the parking lot. After that, you're on your own. Have a good week.